Welcome to A Writer's War, a National Lottery Heritage Fund First World War Centenary Project, produced by Chrome Radio for the University of Oxford's Faculty of Medieval and Modern Languages, in partnership with Year 10 students from Oxford Spires Academy. In the next group of podcasts, we learn about different responses to the First World War in Britain, France, Germany, and former colonies of the British and French empires. We hear now from Prize Fellow Andrew Winnowen and Senior Research Fellow Professor Chantanou Das of All Souls College about the British response. Gas, gas, quick boys. I'm Andrew Winnowen. I'm a fellow here at All Souls College, and I write some poetry in addition to my work as an English literary fellow. I'm here with my friend and colleague, Shantanu. I'm also a fellow at All Souls. I work on war literature, including war poetry, and Andrew and I had been having an ongoing conversation because after I came to All Souls at the beginning of this year, Andrew had been showing me around Oxford We'd often talk about poetry and sometimes Edward Thomas. Who has a wonderful poem about a particular May, a particular Eastertide that we both greatly admire. In Memoriam, Easter 1915, by Edward Thomas. The flowers left thick at nightfall in the wood this Eastertide call into mind the men now far from home who with their sweethearts should have gathered them and will do never again. Edward Thomas is very interesting because he puts pressure on the very definition of war poetry. He wrote all his poems in England before going over to France. Obviously, there have been poems about war. You can go right back to the Iliad. And we have The Charge of the Light Brigade by Lord Alfred Tennyson. But war poetry as a distinct genre evolved with the extraordinary outpouring of verse between 1914 and 1918. War poetry is often conflated with trench poetry. But I think that generation by generation, the whole concept of war poetry has loosened so that we now include civilians such as Thomas Hardy, Rudyard Kipling, women poets. We discussed with the students May Redwen Canaan's poem, Rouen. She was a nurse at Somerville College here in Oxford and wrote a poem about Rouen, which captures some of the excitement that she felt about the war, but also at the terrible undercurrents of sadness that were also going on for her. The horrors of the war test the traditions of English verse. On Easter Sunday, 1915, Dean Inge at St. Paul's Cathedral, read out from Rupert Brooks, the soldier, anointing the soldier poet. Of course, the irony is that Brooke didn't get to see action. He died of a mosquito bite, which developed into sepsis before he got to Gallipoli. That poem operates with a very interesting kind of pre-war heroism that becomes discredited in the course of the war. Brooke didn't see trench warfare whereas Owen does, and he writes about its horrors lucidly and terrifyingly. It would be rather harsh to call Rupert Brooke a propagandist because he was speaking from his heart, but he was certainly speaking in favour of war, and there were plenty of 
war propagandists who are doing that, like Jesse Pope, who is addressed and denounced at the end of Owen's Dulce et Decorum Est, about a group of soldiers who are gassed. He sees them guttering, choking, drowning beneath the gas. Then at the end, he turns to reflect on the kinds of lies that are being told about heroism and the war by the shallow propagandistic versifiers at home. And he says, no, you shouldn't be telling that terrible lie that it is sweet and right, that word decorum, to die for your country. My friend, you would not tell with such high zest to children ardent for some desperate glory the old lie, dulce et decorum est, pro patria mori. And there's something very grim about the way glory rhymes with mori there and est with zest. There is a very dark strain, I think, in Wilfred Owen. We think of him as the pacifist or anti-war poet. But at the middle of Dulce Decoramist, when he talks about the horrific gas attack, gas, gas, quick boys, an ecstasy of fumbling. Why ecstasy? Siegfried Sassoon put a question mark next to the word. There's something deliberately tasteless about it, isn't there? And it's a parody of the hidebowedness and callousness of many of the ideas about what is fitting for the decorum of verse, because that word had longstandingly been one that referred to the compound of form and content that is fitting for a poem. So it's not just a parody of outmoded mores on behalf of the British propagandists and home society, but the tradition in English verse. And I sometimes wonder whether it's a fusion of both horror as well as a sort of nervous energy? Or is it a sense of bodily release? Terrible, yet exhilarating after being cooped up in the trenches for months. Asked to describe violence, Wilfred Owen, in a way, is trapped in the whole musicality of language, replacing real-life horror with a sort of linguistic pleasure. As if the only response to a situation so horrifying was some lyric flight away from it. The word ecstasy actually means standing outside yourself. It's also standing outside oneself because he's remembering that moment of gas attack from his hospital bed in Craig Lockhart in Scotland, where soldiers were sent to be treated for shell shock or neurasthenia, which today we would call post-traumatic stress disorder. The show, also by Wilfred Owen, is particularly interesting for what we're saying about heroism before the war and after the war. A figure who looms large over this is W.B. Yeats, who is involved in a different kind of struggle in Ireland. At the beginning of the show, Owen quotes some lines from Yeats about having fallen in the dreams of the ever-living. He then takes this outlook to task, talks about writhing caterpillars. He turns battalions into these horrible insects. And this is where also lies his difference from Sassoon. There's a poem by Sassoon in which he talks about another kind of ramification of the war. In the hero, Sassoon describes a mother being told that her son has died in the war. She's told all sorts of grand, heroic lies about his conduct. And at the end, the narrator says, none of it was true, but the officer who went to tell her felt a bit better for having told her these things because she would cherish these things all her days. The reader is left with a terrible sense of unease that propagating 
these narratives about the war will lead on to exactly the same kind of social strain that led to the war in the first place. So very interestingly, biting, satirical, chilly poem with an emotional kick at the end. He thought how Jack, cold-footed, useless swine, had panicked down the trench that night the mine, went up at Wicked Corner, how he'd tried to get sent home, and how, at last, he died, blown to small bits, and no one seemed to care, except that lonely woman with white hair. That was the last stanza of the hero. Rather different to the poems by Wilfred Owen. And Owen, interestingly, is always writing to a similar old-haired woman, his mother, to whom he wrote 500 letters. But in his poems, he never mentions that. Instead, he draws us to moments of extreme bodily experience and weaves almost linguistic tactile fantasies. He's interested in moments when limbs are knife-skewed or, for example, the blood starts slowly come out of the lips or when the limbs are still warm, too hard to stir. So he draws us into these moments where we no longer know whether the person is alive or dead. So it's a very different kind of sensibility that we see. One is interested more in society and satire, the other one in the recesses of the body, the body in pain. There is the famous meeting between Wilfred Owen and Siegfried Sassoon at Craig Lockhart Hospital, Sassoon, he was an aristocrat, he was very handsome, he was the public school educated officer poet, who slightly maybe patronized Wilfred Owen, who once knocked on Sassoon's door. Sassoon later would remember the velvety voice of Owen. Owen at that time also had a stammer, and he was completely in awe with this larger-than-life figure of Sassoon. The other big factor which is interesting, both of these writers, they are homosexual. And with Owen, there's this surcharged desire that gets translated into the celebration of the male form. Sassoon, on the other hand, talks about the festering buttocks in the mud. You have this bodily horror. But with Owen, we have an almost perverse aestheticization of the male body as he is recasting Keats. Keats is the favorite poet of both Wilfred Owen and Sassoon, and both of them rework Keats in very different ways. In recent years, our whole idea of war has expanded. War is no longer just combat, but conflict that affects civilians, women, children, refugees. And because of the reframing of ideas of war, the poetry of war has also been reconfigured, so that now it includes poetry by women. And here we have some extraordinary writers like Rose Macaulay, Margaret Postgate Cole. There are, of course, heartbreaking lines from some of these poets, very different from those of the male poets. Here, for example, is Margaret Postgate Cole's Prematuri, where the last line reads, but there are years and years in which we will still be young. So youth becomes a curse because there are not enough men to get married to. And in a previous line, she writes, But we are young and our friends are dead suddenly and our quick love is torn in two. So our memories are only hopes that came to nothing. And this sense of unlived lives is central to the poetry of these women.
and at the end of Redouane Canaan's poem, Rouen, you have this line that is about either leaving something or being left behind, this image of the trains that go from Rouen at the ending of the day, which seems to be the perfect symbol simultaneously for those who feel that due to the war they're now going to be the ones who are left, or they're going to be the ones who are moving on to something else. We had been speaking about a variety of poems written in the First World War, from the visceral poems of Wilfred Owen to the satirical poems of Sassoon to some of the heartbreaking poems written by women such as Rose Macaulay, Margaret Postgate Cole. But a hundred years on, I think part of the challenge for us is how to read the poems without sanitizing the horrors on one hand or even romanticizing these writers. Since you are a poet, Andrew, what relevance have these poems for you? Well, seeing the students working on them, what came through was the importance as an educational tool of these kinds of works for reminding people of the horror of war, the pity of war. I suppose for all of us, though, these poems are a reminder that poetry perhaps comes into its own in a particular kind of way in times of crisis when it's much needed for accurate utterance and moral witness. You have been listening to A Writer's War. I do hope you'll join us for the next podcast in the series.